here yesterday just to let you know uh, we had a men's breakfast in here and I was thrilled with uh, what we did yesterday morning. It was just an average, average morning. There were 52 brothers in Christ who gathered together yesterday. Great time. The group A ranged in age probably from younger than nine to older than 90. It was so good to be together just as guys in the room. Enjoyed food and fellowship. Played a game called Name That Tool. <laughs> Learned some tools that I'd ne- I had no idea they existed. Other than in my nightmares at the dentist. Uh, some, some tools look like that. But we did, uh, oh, we also listened to the Word of God, so it wasn't just a get-together and be silly, but uh, we looked into Luke chapter 5 and learned a few things about how Scripture applies to us and some things that Jesus said that are very apropos for our our lives today. Uh, We do about three or four of these a year. If you are a man and you are anywhere near connected to Hope Community Church, I invite you to come to these. They are great. And it's just good to get together with men. Love the body of Christ. Love my sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's just good to get together as men, isn't it? Uh, So please join us for one of those if you can. As we approach the Word of God, we'll be in John chapter 14 this morning. Uh, But uh, I feel a need to pray before I preach. Dear God, in the course of these moments as we open up the Gospel of John, remind us again that no matter what situation we are in, we have reason to rejoice in Christ. We are strong in Christ. We are secure in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. And we love all of that, undeserving as we are, You have placed us in Christ. Thank you for that. Teach us, please, as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the Bible teaches that we live in a fallen world, not an out-of-control world because this world is still moving in the direction of God's choosing and we'll arrive at a location of God's place, God's choice, but we do live in a fallen world. And what that means is the world that we live in now is not a perfect representation of what God made when he created the world in the the first place because what God created was perfect. And and, uh, there was nothing lacking in, in what God fashioned at the very beginning. But then sin entered the experience of humanity and everything changed. And so now we live in a fallen world And sometimes that produces dilemmas with what we know to be true about God and with what we experience in our own lives. Uh, Plus, as we look around the world today, we notice things that just don't seem right. So what we know from Scripture is that God exists. God is good. God is loving. God is all-powerful. And God is able to intervene in the affairs of people. What we sometimes experience, though, is far from that. And as as we look around our world, we wonder, well, it, it seems that if God was good, then there would be no evil, pain, or suffering. 
And it, it seems like if God were all-powerful, that he would do all that needs to be done to remove every last vestige of evil, pain, and suffering. And if God were all-loving, he would want to remove all evil, pain, and, and suffering. But the reality is, here it is, and, and we live this way. We live in this world. Well, Scripture also teaches us, though, that in order for God to defeat evil, pain, and suffering, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to endure the worst that humanity had to offer, but then also to receive the judgment that was due to us upon the horrible cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, God caused the suffering of his son in order that your suffering would not be eternal, but only temporary. What I want you to understand this morning as we go through the Gospel of John chapter 14 is that the most, the worst evil in history perpetrated upon anyone was the awful ordeal of the crucifixion incurred by the Son of God who was sinless and perfect. And what it achieved for us is a glory that we can barely fathom. We simply trust God based on what we read in his word. And so we can conclude that since the worst evil ever only occurred by permission of, the son, of a sovereign God in the life of the Son of God, you can know with certainty that the worst day of your life has only occurred through permission of a sovereign God who actually has good plans for you. Might not always feel that way, but we have this hope that if God allowed that to happen to his son, Jesus Christ, and he was still in control. We can have hope that a sovereign God can see us through our difficult day as well. When we meet up with Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, uh, Jesus is in the final hours of his earthly freedom. He will live another day but in terms of freedom to do whatever he wants to do, his final hour is rapidly approaching. So far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said that he is God in the flesh. He is the Messiah. He has resurrection power. He has been sent by God and will return to God in glory. And all of that has made people choose. People have chosen sides. Some have tried to be neutral, but for the most part, many have chosen sides. They are either for Jesus or against Jesus, and it feels like the same emotion is present on either side. And now, knowing that the next 24 hours will be devastatingly painful for his friends, Jesus gives them words of comfort and words of life. 
So my aim uh, for this morning is to pass on to you directly from the words of Jesus Christ, words of comfort and words of life. Let's read the first six verses of John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Were it not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, Jesus spoke to a room of people who had just been hit by hard, unwanted news. This is the Last Supper. And Jesus has just told his apostles that one will betray, one will deny, and that he will die. That's a lot to take in. In their minds, it wasn't supposed to end this way. It could have or should have in their thinking. It should have had a, a, a different ending. They have left everything to follow Jesus Christ. And they did so with the hope that he would set up the kingdom and restore Israel to a former glory. In fact, that he would, um, the glory of Israel would exceed anything that the world had known. So as Jesus looks around the room, he sees his closest friends are shaken to the core. And John 14 opens, you saw it here in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Permit me to hit the pause button for just a moment. I want to um, address something that's in the room, not this room necessarily, but in the room in terms of what Jesus is looking at uh, in the upper room as he's gathered with his friends, his, the apostles. There's something that's actually not recorded in Scripture that's evidently not present amongst this gathering. Their Lord, their master, their teacher, their best friend ever has told them that he's going to die a cruel death on the cross and no one bothers to check in with him to see how he is doing. Was there no one in the room who asked Jesus, how are you doing with this? Was there no one in the room who said, you know what, we've just heard this from Jesus, let's gather together and let's pray. Was there no one in the room who put a hand on the shoulder and affirmed their love for Jesus Christ? We don't have that. God is not a divine machine with no feeling and no heart as if he's just up there cranking out the, the rulership of the universe and every once in a while throws you out a blessing without no heart, no emotion, no feeling, no ability to grieve, no ability to sense sorrow or joy. That is not our Lord. That is not our God. In John chapter 13, we 
we read this last week. So we're still, we're in this upper room category. This has already happened. He's, he's with his apostles. John chapter 13, verse 21, reads it this way. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. There's only a couple of occasions in the Gospels where we read this phrase, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Both of them deal with his death. And so Jesus says this, and it's almost as if there's just this blank stare. They have no ability to be uh, empathetic or compassionate with him. I don't know, just stare at him, goes right over their head, no response. That might feel like a bit of of a digression, but I need to call attention to what is in the room, in the upper room that night. I think one of the reasons why the apostles will have such a hard time with the events that will soon transpire is that they are too much about themselves. One reason this will be a hard night for them is that they are thinking primarily about themselves. Fortunately for us, Jesus doesn't think that way. Seeing what's going on in the room and seeing the shock and the sadness, Jesus speaks directly into that. Where words or comfort are needed, Jesus gives words of comfort. These words, that these first six verses that I read are designed to bring comfort and hope to his friends, the apostles. We would do well to remember these words for those moments when our lives are overwhelmed as well. In fact, we would do well to remember these words as we look around the room and see people who might be hurting and overwhelmed, and perhaps we can comfort them. Okay, so Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Well, how do we do that? Fortunately for us, he tells us, trust in God, trust also in me. So glad that Jesus is clear and specific. To leave it at just the level of trust in God would leave it open to, well, for us to reinterpret in our our age today, that could be almost any God. Could be the God of Islam or the God of the Jehovah's Witness, the God of the New Age, the God of the Hindus, the God who is... Uh, claimed by those who are involved in a 12-step program, a higher power. It could be any God. But fortunately for us, Jesus makes it very clear. Trust in God, trust also in me. There's, a, there's a, an equality there that there's equal billing that Jesus gives to the Father and to himself. Trust in God, trust also in me. Trust in me the same way you trust in God. Trust in God the same way you trust in me. This idea of equality with the Father runs throughout the Gospel of John, particularly the the middle portion of of, uh, chapter 14. I'm just going to read through some things. I'm not going to read the entirety of this scripture, but I'm going to make some statements based on what is here in John chapter 14. Verse 7, to know Jesus is to know the Father. Verse 9, to see Jesus is to see the Father. Verse 10, Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Verse 10 again, 
The Father works in Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. A repetition of something. Verse 12, Jesus is going to the Father. Verse 13, Jesus will answer prayer in order to bring glory to the Father. The way we can seek comfort today is simply this. Trust Jesus. Now we can stretch this out a little bit more based on the words of Jesus Christ who said, I'm going to the cross. I think we can put it this way. You can trust someone who will die for you. And that's Jesus. So how about you? Do you trust God? Do you trust Jesus? I know you can trust God for the big ticket items. God exists. God is the God of creation. God is the God of personal salvation. We can trust God for heaven. But how about more specific and more personal? Do you trust God with your time? Do you trust God with your morality? Do you trust God with your money? Do you trust God with your gender? Do you trust God to help you to forgive people who quite frankly are hard to forgive? When Jesus equates belief in God with belief in himself, he is implying that there's no one else to believe. When Jesus he, uh, said this thing, I am the way and the truth and the life. Trust God, trust also in me. Jesus is the only one to believe if you want to believe in God. On this night, Jesus commanded trust in these areas. And I'm looking back at verse 2. Trust Jesus that there are many rooms in God's house. Trust Jesus that he is going to prepare a place. Trust Jesus that he is coming back. Trust Jesus that we know the way to go to the place that Jesus is preparing for us. Okay, so let me just take that apart, one phrase at a time. Trust, uh, let's see, verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. There is plenty of room for those who have been adopted into, into the family of God by receiving Jesus Christ in their lives. There is room for you, and there's room for more. The Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John wrote uh, the book of Revelation when he was older than when he wrote the Gospel of John. And in the book of Revelation, he writes that there's a great multitude in heaven that no one can count. That's a whole lot of people. We can count pretty high. There's a great multitude in heaven that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for that. Years ago, I heard someone, I don't know if this was a, a, in a Bible study or if I heard a preacher Someone who's a Christian said it this way. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus left to prepare this place. It must be quite a place that he's preparing. You know, that's, that's a nice sentiment. That's not what this verse intends to convey. 
I don't think the idea is Jesus is going to create a place like it never existed before. He's going to create, the, create a place and then he's going to tweak it and refine it and mix it up and, and fashion it in such a way that when you finally arrive, you'll be excited because he took such a long time in preparing it just for you. I don't think that's what that means. To prepare a place and be consistent with the... Uh, the context of this conversation, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, we know Jesus is going to the cross. In just a few hours, the horrific ordeal, ordeal of crucifixion is, is, is going to begin. So more consistent with the context of the Gospel of John, going to the cross followed by resurrection to prepare a place for us in the presence of God, I think the preparation is the cross. Jesus can say, I am the way, because he's preparing the place for us to get there. The preparation for people to arrive in heaven is to prepare a way for them to get to heaven. And these words spoken to these men at this time are designed to bring them comfort and they are representatives of the church. So it's just as if Jesus is speaking these words to us. It will happen. There will be a way. There will be a way to be with Jesus forever. There's room for you, and there's room for more. Well, they wanted to know, how do we get there? Where, where is this way? How do we, how, tell us the way so that we can know how to go to where you are going. Well, Jesus is the way. It's as if Jesus said, it's not about a map, it's about me. To say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life is not to say something that the readers of John have been unprepared to hear, and that would be us. John has prepared you for this moment. John chapter 14, verse 6 is, in essence, a summary of everything we've read so far. Let's read it again. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you have some outlines. Uh, you might. You might have picked up an outline. I think the uh, ushers try to hand you an outline as you come into the room. It's also available online. And I wrote some things down regarding the way, truth, and life. I'm just going to uh, read through these and paraphrase some scriptures. Just, just listen and take this in. It's already written down so you don't have to scribble. The way, Jesus is the way. So John chapter 1, verse 1, and when you add verse 14, and we looked at this in some detail, John chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 14, Jesus was born the Son of God. He is God incarnate. That speaks to the uniqueness of, of Jesus Christ. And then we add John 8, 29, Jesus lived a perfect life. So this God who came here because he wanted to and he was sent here, this God lived a perfect life and that qualified him to be something that John the Baptist said. John chapter 1, verse uh, 29. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it wasn't just Jesus being born like at Christmas time. It was Jesus living a perfect life qualified to become the Lamb of God. No sin is due to him. No judgment is due to him. Qualified to be the 
this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 3.16, believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the clearest, most powerful revelation of God. Again, John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus does the works of God. John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus speaks forth the word of God. Remember, we, the way we've looked at it sometimes is um, Jesus says things that only God can say. And Jesus does things that only God can do. Jesus uh, said in, uh, excuse me, John chapter 8, verse 12, to know Jesus is to know God. Okay, so Jesus is life. John chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is life. John chapter 3, verse 16, again, believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus gives life eternal and life abundant. John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus has life within himself. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let me give it to you this way. Because Jesus is the truth, and because Jesus is the life, he is the way. Jesus as the way is not a map or a road sign or a set of beliefs. The way is Jesus. The early church was so faithfully dedicated to Jesus Christ and following him that they became known as followers of the way. Six times in the book of Acts, there's a reference to the way. Even, even before they were called Christians, they were called the way. Followers of the way. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, except through Jesus. To come to God through Jesus is to believe in Jesus and his completed work for you on the cross. One way to God. One way to God is not narrow-minded or intolerant or out of date. One way to God is clear and specific. The Bible points to one person, Jesus Christ, who can bring us to God. This is the totality of what the Gospel of John has been about, pointing out with clarity the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, leading up to this statement, no one else can bring us to God. There's never been a person like Jesus. There never will again be a person like Jesus who is qualified to bring us to God. Now, because Jesus is a, or makes this a, a, a personal claim, follow me through. We're going to logic this for a little bit. He cannot be both right and wrong at the same time. To suggest that Jesus is a way as in one way among many ways, well, then he'd be wrong about himself because he said the words of Jesus Christ, not me. Jesus said that he is the way, implied the only way. In fact, he even add on, I'm, I'm the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to say that he is a way, one of many ways, is to suggest that Jesus is wrong 
about himself. And he cannot be wrong about himself and right about himself at the same time. Jesus cannot be wrong about the path of salvation and right about the path of salvation at the same time. It's either one or the other. It's not a mix of both. And if Jesus is wrong about himself, then he's not the way. In fact, he's not a way at all. To believe means faith in Jesus, not just nice thoughts about Jesus, but to actively trust Jesus that he did the work so that you don't have to. There are some today, and we learned in our core class, it'd be great if you attended core classes, we learned in a core class today that uh, this, this thinking be began long ago. To say that Jesus is, is the, the only way, try, try to say that Jesus is the only way, and you can be saved by Jesus, but not know it. So you have a belief in God, some kind of a general vague belief in God, and you're a little bit wrong. Well, the way that was purchased for you, the way that God has ordained is, is the way of Jesus Christ. But you just don't know that yet because you haven't had it explained to you. Then you're still saved by Christ. There were some who long ago said that. There are some who still to this day claim that. That you don't have to put faith in Jesus in order to be saved by Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches. And I would push back against this by pointing out that 100 times in the Gospel of John, belief in Jesus is heralded. 100 times. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and not perish. So by putting it this way, the way Jesus puts it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is, himself is refuting all other claims to, to believe in God and, and that those other claims somehow would produce eternal life. Jesus is refuting that. The way to receive the blessings of the finished work of Christ is through the faith in Jesus Christ. And faith in the Bible is much more than mental agreement. It's active trust. Remember, all this is, uh, begins with words of comfort that Jesus wants to speak to his friends. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So what Jesus is doing throughout his teaching ministry, but also this night, Jesus is moving his disciples from troubled to trusting, trusting in him. You get the idea that in this conversation, Jesus is telling them everything they need to know to access eternal life so that they can tell other people. There's room for them. There's room for more. That means the only way we can know tr God truly and the only way we can worship God rightly is to approach God through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does this verse help us? John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, I have some thoughts on your bulletin so that you don't have to scramble to write these down. Just listen and take these in. John 14, 6 gives us clarity. 
We have a clear understanding of the terms of salvation, and it could not be any more clear. When I was um, in college, I do remember a gal who was just drawn into what we would call a cult, and I do remember her saying, um, you know, it, it's kind of vague with regard to Christianity. No, it's not. It's all about Jesus, who is the way and the only way. It gives us clarity. John 14, 6 gives us authority. We've been entrusted with a message to proclaim. And this is why we so passionately call people to believe in Jesus Christ, because this is the message that we've been given. This is the only message that we've been given, Jesus Christ. There's room for you. There's room for more. John 14, 6 gives us a sense of urgency. An offer this good has to be made known. An offer this specific and this unique and could I say, this exclusive has to be made known. We, we want to tell our friends, our people, we want to tell the nations about this message, about the person of Jesus Christ. And the good news is there is a way to approach a holy God. John 14, 6 gives us humility. We have no reason to think that we have earned or deserved to receive God's graces gracious invitation any more than anybody else. And yet here we are. John 14, 6 gives us comfort. We have someone to trust, Jesus Christ, who knows the way. We don't know all that there is to know about Christianity, but we know enough. And what we have is sufficient for us to be comforted. John 14, 6 gives us sufficiency. We don't know all there is to know about Christianity, but we sure know what we need to know. We have someone to trust. John 14, 6 gives us reliability. How do we know we're right? Since we could easily make mistakes about so many things. Well, it's not our message. We just read the message. We receive the message. What it all comes down to is this. If Jesus is not the way, there is no going. If Jesus is not the truth, there is no knowing. If Jesus is not the life, there is no living. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. He spoke these words to comfort you, not to alarm you. Be comforted by them and bring them to other people as words of comfort. Whether or not they receive it as comfort or not, bring these words to people as words of comfort. Let's pray. God, we thank you for allowing us to encounter Jesus Christ in this way. That we've heard with more clarity than perhaps a whole lot of people who walk the face of the earth today. We get to hear through the pages of scripture, Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Thank you for the privilege 
of gathering us together here this morning so that we could hear that. We know, Lord, there are people who haven't heard this yet. Some of them are in our own family or our neighborhood or our workplace, our state, our nation, the nations. I pray that you use us, use your church, use missionaries, use pastors, use ordinary folk who just simply read the Bible and believe to tell other people that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Guard us against watering down that message. Help us to cling tightly even when it's unpopular. And perhaps someday persecution comes our way for what we proclaim that which we have heard in the word of God. Strengthen your church that your church on earth might always be a place where the truth is heralded and proclaimed. Announcing to people that there's room for them because there's always room for more through Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. We're going to approach the table now, uh, the Lord's Supper. Fitting that we'd be talking about that in the Gospel of John. And here we are in the first Sunday of the month, and it's time for us to approach the table. Just a few thoughts as we do, and I want to start with this. No one comes to the table with a perfect record. If we were to have communion every week, we wouldn't make it week to week. If we were to have communion every day, we wouldn't make it day to day. No one comes to the table with a perfect record, but that's why we come to the table. We are reminded with the elements of bread and the cup that we are people who have sinned and fallen short of the perfect standard of God, but we're also reminded of our perfection in Christ. We're not perfect in terms of our lifestyle, but we are perfect in Christ. We grieve, we confess, we repent over our sin, but we rejoice over our perfect standing before God in Christ. The table represents the full payment of our moral debt that Jesus paid to God, and so we rejoice, knowing that we are saved, we are secure, we are sanctified in Christ. Christ.